You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. What this panel is about is um, the tension between wanting to have something completely original that is exactly the same thing as you read last time, or writing something completely original that is exactly the same thing that you wrote last time. Um, And our panelists, I'm going to ask to introduce themselves, beginning with John. Hi, I'm uh, John Kessel, and I uh, have been writing Science fiction and fantasy. I guess I'm more known as a science fiction writer, although I think at least at least 40% of my stuff is fantasy. Uh, although not, no wizards, dragons, or castles, or swords, or magic objects. But anyway, uh, and I teach uh, creative writing and American literature at North Carolina State University. And uh, I want to uh, put a plug in for my uh, collection. Uh, this is an anthology edited by James Patrick Kelly and me called The Secret History of Science Fiction. It's just out from Tachyon Books, available in the dealer's room. So, uh, Hi, I'm uh, Dan Waters. I'm the author of Generation Dead and Kiss of Life, which are two young adult novels from Disney Hyperion. I'm, I'm Richard Lupoff, a uh, one-time active, busy science fiction fan, and uh, when I felt as if I'd sort of outgrown that, I just couldn't leave the community, so I was forced to start writing books instead, which I've been doing lately. <laughs> and I'm Beth Meacham, and I've been editing fantasy and science fiction for a very long time. And I'm Delia Sherman, and um, I, I, in, in this particular, I'm a writer mostly of fantasy. Recently, I've been writing um, children's books. Uh, Changeling is the first one. The Magic Mirror, The Mermaid Queen just came out. And the, in this particular context, um, I am the a board member and the editor of Interfictions, which is a, which is a, a book of short stories that are very difficult to categorize and therefore virtually impossible to sell, <laughs> except to, although it's becoming slightly easier as, as people are more used to reading stories that, that, that teach you what genre they are as you read them. Um, the, the, where I wanted to start with this was to, although we are all writers and editors here, to talk a little bit about the pleasures that we get as readers and what we look for in what we read. Because of course, if you're m- most, most writers write because they want to write the kind of thing that they like to read. Um, so I, I would like to ask John if he would, and if, if you would all address the, the, the question of what, what do you look for? Are there, are there times when you want to be challenged, times that you want to um, be soothed? What kinds of things do you go to for comfort? Well, uh, I, I, of course, I've been reading science fiction and fantasy since I was a boy, and I, I um, still love it. Uh, I, I guess I'm a lot more cynical now uh, since I've read so much of it. Um, I do. I look for something that that since because I like science fiction and fantasy, there are certain things that I like. Okay, I want to see something strange happen in the story. I want I, there are certain patterns that occur in a uh, in a story uh, of of a certain sort, and I. In a way, what I want to see is I want to see the writer be aware of those patterns and then 
play against them. Uh, you know, I, actually, it's easier for me to talk about in relation to something like um, uh, screwball comedies, which I'm very much a, a, a fan of. And there are certain things that are absolutely uh, de rigueur in, in, in such comedies, romantic comedies. And uh, you, you know, you see them; they become all very predictable. A bad one is just—it's just excruciating to watch because it's so predictable. But a good one will uh, somehow uh, innovate the, the, make it seem fresh again. Something like, I don't know, something like uh, Say Anything, okay, that John Cusack movie, I don't know if you remember that one from way back. But, uh, you know, it was absolutely in a tradition of teen romantic comedies, but it stands out still 25 years later as being memorable when uh, most of the other ones of that period are, are forgotten. And I think it's because it did something, did something different with it. And so that's what I want to see the writer do with a, with a fantasy or science fiction. I want to see them give me things that I've seen before, but do something, something different. Um, and that's uh, tricky. It's hard to do. I feel like I'm traveling in, in uh, time in two directions with uh, a lot of the reading that I do, both for comfort and inspiration. Uh, I've, I've been a lifelong science fiction and fantasy fan too, but uh, I still feel as though I've just scratched the surface in terms of what I should have read by this point in my life. Uh, so and it's funny because I come to a convention like this and, and uh, have a list of all the latest and greatest things that I that I want to buy, but end up spending most of my money on the forgotten treasures of the past that are that are hard to find these days. Um, one of the one of the things that I I really like a lot, and I think it sends me on these kind of dual directional hunts, is uh, writers who who take traditions and. Uh, I think he, I don't know if he originated the term, but he, he certainly uses it. Uh, Kim Newman's term remixes them. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of, of his work, and half the time I don't get the, <laughs> I don't get the references um, because he draws on a lot of um, uh, more uh, pop culture of the UK, which I, I'm not always completely familiar with but it always makes me want to research it and track it down and, and uh, find out what he was writing about so I can, so I can understand it a little bit more. Well, <clears throat> I, I want to tell you a, a, an incident that happened some years ago. When I was a, a kid, when I was a science fiction fan, one of my many heroes in my personal pantheon was Theodore Sturgeon. And enough years went past that one day I found myself sitting in front of a room like this one, sitting next to Theodore Sturgeon, which was just mind-blowing for me. He told a story of his own youth, which I'm going to repeat because it was so good. He said, when I was a kid and a new issue of Argosy magazine would appear, I would sit down with it, curl up in an easy chair, and say, tell me a story, and Argosy would. Whether it was... Uh, a Western by Max Brand, or an interplanetary romance by Edgar Rice Burroughs, or a foreign legion story by Theodore Roscoe. He was already, as a, as a boy, familiar with the classic tropes of popular fiction and loved them. And, and I, I kind of wound up feeling the same way myself, and very recently was asked to write an introduction to volume one of the complete novels of Captain Future by Edmund Hamilton, which, which I hadn't read 
in, uh, I remember I read, I, I read all 14 of those when, when uh, my wife was in the hospital giving birth to our second child. Uh, and that would have been 1964. And, and I had not looked at, at all of those in all those years. And I read them, and they, they're not really awfully good. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, they're wonderful because they're like comfort food. It's like eating oatmeal when, you know, when you're feeling rotten and staying in bed that day and it's cold and gray and raining. And you read a Captain Future novel. And it was truly wonderful. But on the other hand, I recently got a review book in the, in the mail. It was called Objects of Worship by Claude Lalumier, uh, who lives in Montreal, I believe. He's, I had known him always as a critic a rather acerbic, but also very clever and intelligent critic. He brought out this book of short stories, and he did, John, what you were talking about. He uses all familiar themes, and he turns them on his head. He writes about superheroes. He writes about zombies. He writes about, um, uh, I made a note here and completely flew out of my mind. He wrote, you know, there's a story in there about Household gods. Many cultures have household gods, and we think of them as little stone or clay idols. In, in La Lumiere's story, they are actual living beings, and you really do have to propitiate them, and they'll make your life nice if you do, and if you piss them off, you will be sorry. And, and every story in this book of Claude La Lumiere's was dealing with a familiar theme, but either turning it on its head or twisting it sideways, or flipping it upside down, or you know, doing reverse polarity, so black was white and white was black and orange was green. And, and every page of the book was, was like getting a little pat on the cheek or maybe a slap on the cheek. <laughs> but I never dozed off, and I just loved the book. So I, I, I think that this, I'm taking both sides of the argument at the same time. I, mm. I'm one of those lucky people who can see all sides of every issue and never makes up his mind. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I love the familiar, but I also love innovation. I think that there is a, a real but not necessary tension between storytelling values and prose crafting values. Um, in our genre. Um, and sometimes I think that professionals, people <coughs> working as writers and editors um, in the genre, value the prose style, um, the, you know, the sentence structure, the innovation in story, um, you know, the, the turning the story on the head and, and using the familiar and changing it far more than general readership does. Um, I think that readers, you know, the great invisible, well, not so invisible, but, you know, the mysterious people out there who buy the books, um, who are not us, um, uh, value story far more than we sometimes take into account. Um, it's, you know, like with the Edmund Hamiltons, you know, the, the prose is rough, it's <laughs> clunky, it's kind of silly sometimes, but the storytelling values are so high that you, you just read past it, you ignore it, you, it just sweeps you along in the story. And I, I think that's 
what readers really value. Um, and I think a, a really ripping story uh, told clumsily is more appealing than a, you know, too clever, too refined, too self-conscious story written beautifully. So that's, well, that's a big tension I see. Of course, what you're looking for is both. Well, of course you're looking for both. And they're not, well, I, I think I started by saying these are not necessarily unalterably opposed, but I think those are the two strains. Well, that, that, that brings me to something that, I, that I'm interested in because the, I, was, I was talking to um, some friends of mine about, about genuinely popular culture, things like um, Twilight mm -hmm. and um, Harry Potter and, um, and, and Dan Brown, where the prose is variable um, and the, the, the plot is pretty predictable, especially from book to book, that you, could, that, that you know exactly what pleasure you are going to get. Mm -hmm. it's almost, it is almost like pornography, that, that it is, it's, it's, a, it's an absolutely yeah. predictable response that you're looking for, and you're getting it from a, a reasonably formulaic way of doing things. And um, we talked about why why when, especially when you talked about Harry Potter to people who said this, this is so original. Well, Harry Potter has many excellencies, but originality is not one of them. Um, and that, that there are so many readers out there who are, we are a very highly educated audience. This room is full of people yeah. who really knows the literature, and we are writers who, kind, who, who, who know the literature. Um, and we are, ex we are writing to people who are going to get our jokes, and sometimes they've never heard the jokes before. Um, and I was wondering whether you, who, who is your ideal reader? Are you writing for yourself? Are you writing for someone who you have to, who, who you are educating? Or are you writing to somebody who gets your jokes? Um, actually, this is a, I think it's a very good question. And, it's, and uh, in reaction to what Beth said, I think that this is a, a problem for writers like me who, who have been reading this stuff for entirely too many years and, and um, are, because I, I recognize that, you know, the Twilight books or Dan, Dan Brown's books, I think they reach more people. And, and um, I, well, let's just put this, I don't think I could write those books. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to. I'd start off trying to do that and then I'd mess it up, too okay? So, uh, yeah. Too much of the conscious writing. Yeah, and, and uh, so what I would say when I write, who am I writing for? I'm writing for, I guess I'm expecting the reader to have, have read a lot of the kinds of things I'm writing. And who, who and to have thought about them, and and, and someone who's open to uh, someone who's going to play with the the uh, forms, and rather than someone who is sort of the naive reader who just comes in off the street and has never read uh, this kind of thing before, and uh, so for instance, the Harry Potter books, which I read all of them with my daughter, and I enjoyed them, but again, yeah, they're you know I just wanted to edit the damn things, okay, and uh, you know and uh, and. You know, and, but of course that would, wouldn't make them better books. I don't think I, I might destroy what, was, what people enjoyed about the books. Uh, you know, when Ron does the same damn thing again in book six that he did in book two. So, uh, um, but uh, having said that, I do, I do want to give the reader uh, some pleasure. I, I, if actually, I, I say this to my students all the time. You know, that if, if writing isn't fun, then it, uh, and re well, writing is never fun. No. <laughs> 
if, isn't if reading fun. isn't fun, then don't do it, okay? It should be fun. It should be entertainment. And um, I, I firmly believe that, although people reading my work often question what my idea of entertainment <laughs> is. So, uh, so actually, this story I have up for the World Fantasy Award, Pride and Prometheus, which is a cross between Frankenstein and, and Pride and Prejudice, uh, you know, what I was trying to do there was to give a, a reader of Jane Austen, for instance, a lot of the things that you'd get from a Jane Austen book. So I wanted to have, I had to have the dinner scene, I had to have the scene at the dance, I had to have the walk in the woods where they talk about romance, I had to have uh, witty dialogue, I had to have a secret that comes between the lovers. Mm -hmm. Now, in this case, the secret is that the, one of the lovers has created an artificial human being out of stitched together corpses, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Which, which is not what you get in Jane Austen, okay? But to me, that was, that was the fun of it, okay? Was that, okay, this is something that wouldn't have happened. Now, this is written before this uh, silly Jane Austen and Zombies book that came out that I want to murder the guy who wrote that book because he didn't really think about it. He just used it, okay? He exploited it, and I hate him. And, he's, and, and you know what? And, and he's made a gazillion dollars, okay? So what can I say? You know, this is why I'll never make a gazillion dollars, all right? So, uh, you know, this is the tension that Beth is talking about here, okay? That, to me, is the least common denominator of innovation. There's no innovation there. It's just slathering in crap in the middle of Jane Austen's wonderful novel, okay? And, you know, if they could put uh, wire around her corpse and, and put some brushes on the end of it, you could power a small city from... Uh, <laughs> from uh, uh, but, um, but, you know, that doesn't seem to matter to the people who are, are really publishing matter. and buying this book, so I'm in the minority there. <laughs> <laughs> it really doesn't matter. Did, did you read Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters yet? It's, it's really, it's really good. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, uh, as the writer of two zombie novels for, uh, <laughs> young adults, I, I think I have a similar but, but a little bit different perspective. Um, I, I don't have the same enmity for those type of books, mainly because I think of them as gateways. I mean, Stephanie Meyer sold 29 and a half million copies of her books, and uh, last year alone, if, if you yes. add up all of her titles. Now, I, I guess we could sit back and rage against the machine and, and want to whack those books out of kids' hands and say, no, this is the one you should be reading. But to me, a, a large number of those kids will move on to, to other, I, I hesitate to use the words, more, more approved books, or, or, um, but other books, uh, books in different, more challenging books, uh, so to speak. Um, but to answer your original question, I probably started out writing for myself. Uh, I didn't know I was a, an author of young adult books until I was told. Um, I had, I had a, uh, the initial offer that I got was actually going to bring it out as a mass market paperback, and then I, I met with an agent who kind of did the, the thing that I was talking about where he slapped the contract out of my hand and said, no, you want to be a young adult author and this is, this is why. Um, There's money in it. Yes, money, 29.5 <laughs> million copies, et cetera, et cetera. Corrupting um, the young is always good. Corrupting the young is, is definitely high on my list of goals now that I'm defined as a, as a young adult author. But it, 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 it is interesting because um, a lot of the jokes 
and sort of the the uh, the references and the the things that rely on knowledge of of the past and the culture and, and you know our stuff, so to speak, the the kids don't don't get it. Kind of moves over them, and in some cases they'll they'll ask me for explanations. And it's it's a weird readership, the young adult readership. It's it's largely um, young girls, like between the ages of 12 and 16, and their moms. So it's a really interesting <laughs> thing because their moms get all this stuff. And, and you know, it's, it's funny because some of the, the contact I get from them, it's, it's more like, I see what you did. I see how you tried to warp my child here, and I approve. <laughs> so it's, it's, it, it's kind of a nice, a, a nice place to be, I think. So, you know, I, I, I have to say that, but I, I wonder sometimes, because before, before Harry Potter and before Twilight, there seems to be like a, a readership gap almost. Like if you, even if you look at the age range in, in, in this room right now, there's almost like it skipped. So you, you wonder if when we talk about tradition, um, we wonder, I, I wonder if there's maybe a, a decade or so where there weren't kids who were picking these things up as they went along, kind of in the same ways that, that we did. So I'm wondering if they're going to have that, that same sp experience of traveling in time in two directions. I think there are. I think there always were. But I think that, I mean, we all see, our, we see ourselves here, so we see the people who did pick the books up as kids and read them, and we're not seeing the millions upon millions of people who only, only encounter one fantasy book in their growing up because you know we are, we see ourselves everywhere but we are not everywhere unfortunately um, so uh, there's a lot of uh, fantasy in television these days in film these days um, it pervades the culture in a way it did not when I was growing up um, up until I think the late 70s is when you started seeing a lot of bleed through from genre fiction basically uh, into mass media. Uh, mass media when I was younger was westerns basically uh, but I think science fiction and fantasy have supplanted that in mass culture. Um, so we're not seeing all that many young people at this convention because Fantasy is not something special and, and rarefied to them. It's, it's not a special escapist place to be. It's just the air they breathe, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to have better ways to exploit that, <laughs> to sell books. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, I guess I got skipped over that time. Uh, okay. Oh, oh that's okay. I'm you're, now, now you're bringing up yeah. the rear, which is the oh, okay. position um, the of yeah, the man. anchor man. I, I do want to revert to the prior question of who do you write for, um, and I, I, I don't write for anybody. Uh, I, I write for the story. I don't feel that I really create my stories. Uh, I find them. They're part of the world. They're part of everyday life. They're little incidents 
things that happen to me or that I observe happening to other people. And when such an incident occurs, I say, now, that's really interesting. That would make a good story. Following which, you know, back to the old keyboard and write that story and write it the very best that I can write. Um, the theory, at least, is that when you do that, you know, build it and they will come, write it and they will read, if it's good enough to deserve their attention. Uh, that's the way I work. And I, I, have, I have no complaint against people who have, like, against authors who have an ideal reader in mind. And, and I'm writing for that 14 and a half year old high school sophomore whose interests are this, that, and the other. And you sort of craft a product to fit the idealized consumer. Uh, what I do is, is more, I think it's more old school. I, I don't think traditionally authors did that. I think at one time, the way I do it was pretty much the way most authors did it. That they would have an idea, that they would write it as best they could write it, and assume that people will find their way to it and will enjoy it if it's good enough to deserve their attention. Well, part, part of what you're talking about is now with the internet, we are so much more conscious of what our readers think than we ever were before. I mean, when, when I first got in this business, pe you met people at science fiction conventions and they told you that you had gotten something wrong or that they really liked something or whatever they said, but that was the only time you got any feedback from your from your audience and and, and there were you, or, or, or people would write letters to authors and it would go through the publisher and and you would get it you know three years later uh, <laughs> and and you, and there was this 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 sense that you were writing into a vacuum and which mainstream writers still have pretty much because they they don't have as much contact with our audience with their audience as we do with ours but now you you know people will shoot you off an email and you you know what they think or or you you Google yourself and then you really know what they think <laughs> <laughs> and this is this is new this is new this yeah. is something that has not been before and and dealing with it is sometimes a little wearing um, I uh, one of the things that I'm hearing as I hear you all talk is the fact that we're all defining familiarity slightly differently mm -hmm. which is really interesting that 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 what, but, 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 but we all go back to what is familiar. It's, it's, it's pride and prejudice, the real pride and prejudice that, that, you, are, that you are remixing. There, there are things that you are familiar with and that you hope your audience will be familiar with too. Once you've gotten past that, um, what, what do you put in there that, that does not riff off of this? What, what, what do you feel that, that you are bringing other than because mostly what we've been focusing on is, is talking about taking disparate elements and putting them together. What, what mediates in your, in, in your creation that, 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 is, that is just you? I mean, are you saying, like, what do I bring to the story that's original, that's just yeah. me, it's yeah. nobody else? Yeah. Um, that's a good question, too. And uh, unfortunately, I, I, I guess I feel that, um, I've never been a terribly original thinker in my entire career, and and uh, uh, my skills, such as they are, I think often are are a matter of um, mixing things in a different way. I'm I'm actually notorious for stealing from better writers, uh, 
but I also guess there's a certain, uh, there's a, you know what I think, uh, I'll speak for myself, but I think it, it's a, a lot of writers, what you bring is you bring the person you are and your vision of the world, whether you are conscious of it or not, uh, you bring that. And, you, and, and whether you think you're just writing yet another, uh, you know, uh, zombie story or vampire story or, or space opera, that you are bringing to it some essence of your personality, I think, that that, that, that will, will express itself, whether you are, are consciously uh, putting across a message that you firmly believe in, or whether you're just trying to write another space opera, that that will, that will come across. And, and so, um, you know, I think what I bring is a kind of uh, cynical and uh, satirical sensibility to my work that uh, you know, um, no right-thinking person would ever really uh, want to live in that headspace. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and, uh, uh, but also a kind of delight in, in, uh, in, um, in, in, the, in play. I like to play around and, and uh, you know, in some ways I feel like I'm a kid in a sandbox when I'm, I'm just taking Jane Austen's blocks and Mary Shelley's blocks and playing with them, okay? And, uh, you know, it'd be nice if I made my own blocks. There's a couple of my own blocks in there too. But, but you know, what exactly I'm bringing there is really, I guess, my own uh, uh, sense of the world, of what people are like. You know, uh, what they're capable of doing, what they surprise each other by doing. I think people surprise each other all the time. They they surprise themselves uh, by what they do. And uh, you know, I think that that's interesting. That 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 uh, even if you're uh, died in the wool, you know, conservative. That you'll often you'll you're capable of doing something that was completely against what everyone would expect of you, and that to me is uh, what makes people interesting. So I, I, I try to get something like that in the story. I, I I think you said it very well. Actually, as far as the originality things, I I would agree. I don't think I'm that original, and I think if I really took the time I could trace all the synaptic connections that got me from where I <laughs> where I stay but the thing is you don't you don't really know consciously where they come from like I was watching last night I got in really late from the east coast and I, I turned on cable and uh, the movie 13 ghosts was on does anybody know that movie I love that movie <laughs> and, <laughs> As cheesy or, or brilliant as you may think it is. Is that the it, one that has Emerjo in it? I, I, well, I think it's actually a remake of a... Oh. Of a, uh, a it's got Castle Masterpiece. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's got the guy that plays Monk in it. I, I forget. Oh. But anyhow, there's, I realized in watching it that there's one of the 13 ghosts is the angry princess... And I didn't know it at the time, but in my, my next book, uh, which is called, which will be out next year, I, I kind of ripped off the way that she looks in that movie. And I had no idea that I had, I had done that, but in looking at, at the book, and, and uh, so now you can go on the internet and say, Dan Waters completely ripped off 13 Ghosts. <laughs> um, but the way the angry princess looks in that, in that movie, there's, there's a scene in my next book where, you know, it's, it's kind of, and the character's a lot, she's not angry, my, my character's not angry. Um, but visually, she, she looks similar. So it, it's just, I think it's interesting, the, the originality, I, I, I don't know, it's, it's like you have a, 
Hadron Collider in your brain or something, and everything you feed into it, it eventually spits out something kind of cool. And, and uh, that's where it that, comes that's, from. That's, that's exactly what I'm always telling my students, <laughs> that you've got to read a lot because you never know what, you, you have to furnish your brain really well. Yeah. Feed your head. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I, I always say that no two writers will ever write the same story the same way. You can give a room full of writers the same plot, the same characters, and you will get how, you know, however many different stories as there are writers in the room, and they'll all be completely different. Um, every writer brings themselves to the story, and it, what makes a story interesting or boring or you know weird it, it's all coming from inside the writer uh, and I don't think it really has all that much to do with cleverness and innovation of plotting when you come right down to it actually I've done that in, in a classroom have you? Did you? I have yeah. given prepared an outline of a story with a character list and an events list and just a couple of lines about a setting. And given maybe 15 to 20 students the identical sheet and say, write this story. And it is astonishing how different the results can be. Just, just mind-blowing how different they are. On the other hand, I do want to raise an issue which, well, I want to raise another issue, and that is whether certain themes or genres or types of stories get used up. For instance, I, I have a personal conviction and I, John, you and I, I guess we're both minority types on this, but I, I think that the so-called horse and fantasy, uh, horse and castle fantasy is used up. And people keep writing them. But I haven't seen anything new in that genre in the past 20 years. In fact, one day I was I was reviewing some books and I was reading one of these, sitting in my living room, reading it and the doorbell rang. I put the book down, I went and I dealt with whoever was raising funds or selling soap suds or whatever, and came back and picked the book up and tried to resume reading and I had this strange moment of almost, almost Satori-like enlightenment <laughs> and I said to myself, I don't know whether I've read this book before or not. <laughs> and, then, and then I had the greater moment of enlightenment, which was, it doesn't matter. <laughs> because so many of those things use the same characters, the same settings, the same tropes, the same attitudes, the same plot lines. Some of them are, are written very skillfully and some not very skillfully. But essentially, it's the same book getting written over and over again. Now, sometimes, you know, let, let me draw a parallel here. You start with a folk tradition in music, and music grows and grows, and eventually a guy named Beethoven comes along. After Beethoven, it's over. I mean, he did what, on the other hand, it's not shameful to be Johannes Brahms. You know, he wrote some pretty nice music too. He was maybe Beethoven light, but he was a fine composer and his music has great value. Now I wonder, maybe Richard Wagner, do I have the wrong Wagner? Anyway, the guy who wrote The Ring, 
the ring cycle. It, it was? Yeah, yeah. You got okay. It. I believe that the connection between that work and Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is largely overlooked, and I think it's a very important very connection. Clear. Uh, if Tolkien, I'm not sure whether he was the Beethoven or the Brahms of, of the epic fantasy, but whichever he was, everybody else who's worked in that field, I, I hope if there's anyone in this room whom I offend, I apologize, but uh, all the rest uh, range from about fifth rate downward. And I just, I, I think that works of, of true value, if not absolute genius, in that genre deserve preservation and deserve to be read generation after generation. On the other hand, some of the imitators, I don't want to get sued, so I won't mention any names, but one of these guys has the same initials as, as, as a deadly lung disease. <laughs> uh, you know, th th they should be taken out and, and removed. So as, as a day declined, uh, and they, they, they stopped by the side of the road beneath a huge tree and broke their fast with a simple meal of bread and cheese. Uh, <laughs> you, don't, you don't buy that line, okay? No. <laughs> but they still sell. Yes, because that's that tension between the readership wanting something a little bit different but exactly like what they read before. Well, and since they can't reread Tolkien, for reasons I don't understand, but they feel they can't reread it because they know how it ends. <laughs> I've never understood that. Um, so they want something different, but just like the same before. And so there is an audience. For well, and, and I actually, I you know, being as cynical and sort of overread as I am, <laughs> I have to say, you know, I have to speak up for that twelve-year-old, okay, Absolutely. who who. Who comes to it, and it's it's entirely new to that person, and and they that person, you know, I, I wouldn't hate to take that away from them. I, I don't know my daughter, you know, loved uh, uh, the Potter books, and she loves Twilight. Okay, you know, she's read those books, and I, sure. you know, I I would I wouldn't want to say to her, no, you can't do that, or you shouldn't like that. That's that's foolish. I once had a conversation with a person who worked at a gym, who told me that he loved reading fantasy loved fantasy novels, and he was reading, uh, I, I, I think actually the same one that you were not mentioning. <laughs> and he just loved it, just loved it. And I said, have you read Tolkien? And he says to me, looking me in the eye and being sincerely and genuinely truthful, I tried, but it was too complicated. Oh. And I went away and thought about that for a long time. Well, did you reach I'm a conclusion? I'm still thinking about that. No, <laughs> yeah, she quit I did not gym. reach a conclusion, <laughs> except to say there is, there is a genuine desire among people who like to read stories for things that are a little less complex and rarefied, and that that's not a bad thing. I have a, my, one of my very best friends is a, a novelist that I teach with him. His name is Wilton Barnhart. He wrote a novel called Gospel in the mid-'90s. Uh, and it's about this crazed uh, professor from a university who uh, has a young woman companion, and they're searching around Europe for a lost gospel that uh, is being searched. There's also a secret society that's also trying to get this gospel because if it is ever published, it will uh, over uh, revolutionize the uh, 
uh, a Christian world and be a, a great scandal, okay? Uh, a book came out in 95, and it was uh, literally acclaimed and sold a few copies. And, uh, you know, it, as, as, as Wilton likes to say, he wrote, uh, you know, um, uh, Dan Brown for smart people, okay? And, and, and uh, 10 years before Dan Brown wrote it, okay? And, and uh, you know, so what can I say? All right. Uh, I think that... I want to ask John, John Kessel, has your daughter read Dracula? No, she hasn't. No, I How old is she? Diana She's uh, 15. And Diana Lynn Jones, yes. Um, I, I, because we're, we're, we're having so much fun, but it's quarter of, and I would really like to, to take some questions. Um, We see where, they, where, they, where they go through changes and grow over 10 books? That's true. Oh. Uh, my question is for uh, Richard. Uh, you said that the, the sword and its, or the horse and its actual fantasy in your mind is the big genre and it's sort of a big genre. And I wondered if uh, that really gets me going, what you just said. That's the problem with fantasy. Uh, we've got to find something Please do. Yes. But you might not agree with me, but I want to know if you guys have any suggestions for writers who are doing something new with that whole horse and castle fantasy these days. I can answer that. <laughs> There, there are a lot of there, there are a lot of things that are set in medieval settings that I don't know whether anybody would call them Carson Castle fantasies, but 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 things written by um, Sarah Manette. Uh, there, there are there are many fine, really interesting things out there that that are based on actual history <laughs> and are, are 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 different because they're not copies of copies of copies. Uh, there, there are they don't take place in fantasy land. They take place in a real world. There in, are a, a, a number of... There are a number of cross-genre writers who are writing historical... They feel almost like fantasies, but there's no supernatural element, but they're so alien to us. Uh, and, and, and they're murder mysteries as well. And I'm thinking in particular of a woman named Sharon Newman. Yes who yeah, writes absolutely. wonderful novels set in, I believe, 15th century France. Yeah. Yeah. I met her one time, and she is such a scholar. She, I don't know how our conversation came around to it, but somehow I said, how come the ladies 
had those big droopy sleeves on their dresses in that era. She says, that's because the pocket had not been invented and they carried things in them. I said, wow. And anyway, I, I mentioned Sharon, <laughs> but, but I, I'm sure there are uh, at least half a dozen, maybe more people doing this kind of writing and some of the books are very good. It's Don't you the feel same, it's the same reason why situation comedies on television can run for years and years, and yet the same people who love it won't watch reruns. <laughs> See, I, I find that my my relationship to those books changes over time. So I like to reread too, but it's not always the same comfort. It's not always the same vibe and sometimes it's like what the hell was I thinking <laughs> you, you know so I I, I don't know I, I don't think you can always go back to the same well personally and it, this is just a general comment I mean I think it's very easy to get jaded especially because I'm guessing most of the folks in the room are, are the ones that are that are holding up those statistics the you know that say the average American reads you know 0.47 books a year and you know I read about 200 books a year. I'm, I'm sure that many of you do too. And I think it would be very easy to kind of, because after you read that much, the, the air kind of gets rarefied and, and you do start, start to see the same things over and over again. And you can get, you could allow yourself to get very jaded and bitter about what you're seeing and you're not seeing the same, you're seeing the same things over and over again. But on the other hand, um, if you just take that inner critic down a notch, just a, just a little notch, there, there's something to be, something pleasurable to be found in just about anything. I mean, there's something in, in I know that could start a whole new panel of disagreement. <laughs> um, 29 and a half million readers can't be wrong, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, there was a time, I, and oddly enough, it was before I was published where I got very bitter and I, I worked in a bookstore and I was constantly flinging arcs across the room saying, what the hell, why not me? <laughs> but, <laughs> but it, and I don't know if now it's that I, I have books on the shelf, I can relax a little bit and, and go, you know, okay, that's... That's pretty much the same as everything, but this, you know, that I like that character, or I like this paragraph, so I don't know. I, I promised you. Um, I like to hear from someone who has a better grasp of the numbers than I might have, the concept you've been touching on a little bit, which is the rising tides lift all boats theory, which has been brought up as sort of a reason we should forgive the badly written bestseller. And, I mean, and from my understanding of uh, how things sell, Harry Potter is not. 
agree with you, Scott. It's invalid. They, it, they don't. You might get, you know, one-tenth of one percent who will, you know, trickle over into reading other genre books. But really, they're not reading fantasy. They're reading Harry Potter. And if you don't give them Harry Potter, they're not going to read it because they're not generalizing. They're reading that story. But does that, I mean, does that mean that, say, the Lemony Snicket books have an entirely different readership than the Harry Potter books? I, yes. I don't, well, my daughter read both of them, so well, I mean, you know. Well, yes, but one-tenth of one percent, <laughs> she's your daughter. Right. See, right. I, I, I'm not tied into everyone's sales figures and, and wouldn't, wouldn't want to know, but I, I really do, I mean, I'd buy Stephanie Meyer lunch because I know she'd need my handout if, if she walked in the room because... I, I'm absolutely certain that I, I get spill-off from her fans. Do you? Absolutely. Now, maybe it's different with young readers, um, but I, but I, th I think you it get, is, actually. I, I've done a some. few. You get some. Yeah. Like I said, you, you know, a tenth of a percent. And a tenth of a percent of 29 million is a lot. <laughs> you know? I, I'd yeah, settle. It really is a lot. <laughs> but it's not, I mean, it, it's not vast numbers moving sure beyond and out. I actually really wanted to keep this to art and not commerce. And, <laughs> oh, and I had promised you that you were going to say something, so please do. Um, just listening to everybody speak, it kind of sounds like what you're saying is that there's a lot of people who My, my feeling about it is, is what I try to do, what I want to do is I want to give, write something that will give someone pleasure to read it. And on, but there's a lot of different pleasures. So the, the, you know, the John Kessel pleasure is not the, you know, the Dan Brown pleasure, okay? And, and, and so um, I don't know that this, that's a problem necessarily. I just have to resign myself to not having as large an audience. But, but, but and also I think that pleasure comes both from familiarity and, and, and uh, innovation. Uh, um, even in the even in uh, books that are you know seem to us to be cut from the same uh, pattern, um, you know I, I don't know maybe there's some element of innovation there. It's just that you know it's who, who's reading it. Saladin and then you.
Yes. No, reading a really good book is reading a really good book, no matter what it is. Um, depending on taste and, and what you go to a book for, you're going to look for, 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 for different things. I, I like nice prose. I, I need nice prose. Um, a good story is, is, is fine. I'm, more, I'm really more interested in the characters than constant action. So, so a book that whatever else its, its excellencies may be, that doesn't have those things, I am not going to enjoy as much, personally. It, I'm not going to say that it's a bad book if it doesn't, um, because I was well brought up. Uh, <laughs> and I don't want to offend anybody. But, um, but, but everybody, has, everybody gets something slightly different, and, and I think that there have been books that have been written that are absolutely right in the middle of the genre that, that, that some person would look at and say, this is really, really formulaic. There is nothing that is really new except maybe these characters are more interesting or they bring up the underclass or whatever. And I think that, that, that those books are, are, are wonderful books. Um, because they because they do correct the blindnesses of the gen of the previous generations, um, and I promised her. <laughs> The soup of story, yeah, that's what Tolkien was talking about. Thank you so much. I'm afraid we're out of time. This has been, you've been great. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.